So let's jump into it. I'm just going to read it all, and then we'll take it apart a little bit at a time. All right, so follow along with me, 1 Peter um, chapter 4, 1 through 11. Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same understanding, because the one who suffers in the flesh is finished with sin, in order to live the remaining time in the flesh no longer for human desires, but for God's will. For there has already been enough time spent in doing what the Gentiles choose to do, carrying on in unrestrained behavior, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and lawless idolatry. They are surprised that you don't join them in the same flood of wild living, and they slander you. They will give an account to the one who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was also preached to those who are now dead, so that although you, they might be judged in the flesh according to human standards, they might live in the spirit according to God's standards. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and sober-minded for prayer. Above all, maintain constant love for one another, since love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaining. Just as each one of you has received a gift, use it to serve others, as good stewards of the varied grace of God. If anyone speaks, let it be as one who speaks God's words. If anyone serves, let it be from the strength God provides, so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. To him be the glory, the power, forever and ever. Amen. All right, so that's a lot, and it covers like two what seemingly different ideas. And if you were to look at the, the letter of 1 Peter before it was put into a Bible, before it was bound up in a book, you know, we wouldn't have the, those little fun little headings, the two sections we're covering in my Bible, call them following Christ and end time ethics. But those weren't in, those are not inspired text, right? Um, and the little numbers for the verses weren't there. So you would see that these are just a continuation of what Paul was, not Paul, Paul didn't write this. Peter did. What Peter was writing about earlier. Well, half the time we talk about the New Testament, it's Paul. So, sorry. Um, but, so this first section really ties into what Pastor Preston was talking about last week. And then the second section, I will show you how it ties in. Because I think, well, it's one guy's letter. So it's a cohesive thing, but it seems kind of weird at first. So we'll start in verse 1. Therefore, since, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same understanding. We have to ask, what is this understanding that we are to have? What is the same understanding? Well, if you flip back a couple pages, and for me it's on just one page back, um, to chapter 2, verses 21 and 20, through 23, he says this about Jesus. He says, For you are called to this, that is suffering, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He did not commit sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. So when Jesus suffered, what did he do? What is the thing we should emulate? We should be entrusting ourselves to God, the righteous judge, the one who's going to be able to look at everything that's happening here, all the suffering that we experience now, and say, okay, you suffered well, you didn't suffer well, you sinned in your suffering, you didn't sin. And what did Jesus not do? Well, it says he didn't sin, he didn't lie, he didn't insult, he didn't threaten. And we see this a lot, right? When something is not going well for somebody, you might go talk to them, they're a little grumpy, they're a little hard to interact with. There's the, that saying that you hear in a lot of like counseling things that hurt people, hurt people. Um, that when you're suffering, you're, there's just something about suffering as humans that we are more in touch with that um, sinful side, that, uh, that fleshly side, that it's easy to just lash out when we suffer. But Jesus didn't do that. He entrusted himself to God. He said, I'm suffering, and I'm going to trust that the one who judges rightly is going to see me through it. And now I'm going to skip the second half of verse 1 because it's kind of like 
stuck in the middle of the sentence, and we're going to finish the sentence with verse 2, which says, so, so we arm ourselves with that understanding. Why? In order to live the remaining time in the flesh, no longer for human desires, but for God's will. So we're living for God's will. And then I have a five-year-old, so the question why gets asked a lot in our house. Um, and so I like to ask, why? Why do we want to live for God's will? So I pull out my handy-dandy, this is the New City Catechism for kids. And you can get one of these on Amazon for like $2. Um, it's just a little book that um, the Gospel Coalition and uh, Tim Keller's church put together that asks the questions of the faith and provides answers for them. And question four says, how can we glorify, oh, that's six, sorry, I skipped ahead. Question four says, how and why did God create us? And the answer that it provides is, God created us male and female in his own image to glorify him. So the point of us being created is to glorify God. And you say, well, how can we do that? And question six is, how can we glorify God? And the answer is, by loving him and obeying his commands and law. So if we want to live for God's will, how do we do that? We follow what we were created to do. We obey him. We're made to yield to his will. We're made to follow his commands and his law. So we arm ourselves with the with the, um, with the attitude of suffering that Christ did so that we can fulfill our entire purpose of being. That when we suffer and we follow Christ and we follow his law and we listen to the example that he set for us, we're just fulfilling our purpose. That the reason we exist is to glorify God and that's how we do it. But then Peter put this thought in the middle of this sentence that's I'm going to call 1B. And he says, because the one who suffers in the flesh is finished with sin. And this one gave me pause for a minute. I'm like, Peter, are you saying that if I'm suffering, I can't sin? But obviously that's not true because, like I said, you've met the hurt people who are hurting people, and they may be suffering, but that, and then they make other people suffer because they're suffering. So obviously he's not saying that if you're suffering, you can't sin. You can do whatever you want. There's no laws. Um, obviously that's fake. He's saying that if, you've, if you suffer for righteousness' sake, you've made a break with sin. If the choice is before you of, I can do this thing, which is sin, but it wouldn't, I wouldn't suffer for it. And we'll see some choices that um, the believers in Turkey that Peter's writing to could have made that would have allowed them to not suffer. Um, he's saying if you could make that choice to sin and not suffer, or you could make the choice to follow God and suffer, you've kind of broken this chain, this link of sin for a minute. You've stepped away and said, okay, I'm, I'm going from this, oh, I could go either way, and I could go into sin, but I'm finished with that sin. I've moved away from it for a time. The word finished here in the Greek, I'm sorry, Don, I'm going to butcher this. Um, well, this one, not so bad, but the next one, buckle up. Um, this one is pao, and it's where the verb pause, that we get like the word to pause comes from. And so when he says finished, he said that you are pao with sin, that you have a, um, a pause on sin. And that suffering the suffering for righteousness' sake is aiding us in our, in our sanctification, that it is just a, a refraining from sin, moving away from it. And he follows that up and he says in verse 3, for there's already been enough time spent in doing what the Gentiles choose to do, which he's going to list a bunch of sins. He's saying, you've spent plenty of time sinning. You're not, you don't need to go back to that sin. Sometimes I think we see something we used to do maybe before we were Christians or something that just, as we've become more like Christ, we see it and say, well, that was fun can do that again that would be fun and it's not good but like it's fun like those those dirty jokes i used to tell they were funny like they were bad but they were funny 
um, and I could do that again, and it would be fun. And, and Peter's saying, you've had enough time to do that. You're not going to get anything out of that. You may think it's fun, but like it's not helping you in any way. You've had plenty of time to do whatever the sin is. Don't do it anymore. There's, you don't need to do it anymore. I'm going to pick on my boy. Sometimes he, like, he likes watching TV, as kids do. And he'll say, just one more show, just one more show. And maybe he's been watching quite, you know, more than maybe Katie and I want to let him because we have to get things done sometimes. And it's easy to put your kid in front of the TV and they can watch Wild Kratts or Pokemon or whatever he likes to watch. And he's like, I just want to watch one more. He's had enough time. It's time to move to something better for you. Yeah, it's fun to watch Pokemon. I love watching Pokemon. But it's not good for you anymore in the moment. We have to move along. And he goes on to list some things and he said, um, you've spent enough time doing the thing that Gentiles choose to do, carrying on in unrestrained behavior, evil desires, and drunkenness. And we can look at these things, and these are like more personal sins that you're not committing with other people. These are like just things that you have um, that we all can understand what this is about. And then he lists some other things. Orgies, carousing, and lawless idolatry. And kids, if you don't know what that word means, ask your parents. I'm not going to explain it. Um, a couple weeks ago, Brent Nesseth told people to Google it. Don't Google this one. Just ask your parents. Um, but so we, we think about orgies, and we know kind of what that is. And we like, okay, yeah, it's obviously bad. But this, there's more to this than just people seeking pleasure in a hedonistic society. Orgies were a way to gain favor from the gods. He's talking to a people that were previously pagan worshipers of the Roman pantheon, right? So they were worshiping Zeus and Mars and Venus and Neptune, and those are all Greek names. I don't know. I get confused. Hades is Neptune, and Mars is Ares. It's all confusing. They're all the same gods, but they're worshiping fake gods. They're worshiping idols. And one way that you would gain favor from them would be participating in these, in these activities. And so um, these were like fertility rituals. And so if you want your harvest to, to grow really well, well, what do we do? Okay, town, let's get together and, and do this crazy thing. And if you want everyone to make sure you have babies, you do this thing. And it's just part of um, the worship of these gods. And then the word carousing is next. And I've heard this word when, like, people my grandfather's age would use this, and it normally meant, like, running around town and talking to ladies that weren't your wife and having a few too many drinks and um, that kind of thing. But the word um, and the idea in the Greek here is actually another kind of idolatry where you would get a bunch of friends together, You'd go get really drunk, and then you'd run around the town with torches, which seems like a terrible idea. Um, but you'd run around the town with torches, and you'd be singing songs, and this was all in honor of Bacchus, who is like the, or his other name is Dionysus, and I don't remember which one's which, so don't, I don't know. But he's the, if you've seen the movie Hercules, the Disney movie, he's the big purple dude who's always laying there eating grapes. And he was the god of like wine and partying and, and things like that. So this was another act of idolatry. And then finally he says, don't join them in lawless idolatry, which is kind of evidently just idolatry. He's saying all idolatry, don't do any of this, which is not just showing that you don't believe in the Roman pantheon, but it's also showing that you're not really exactly faithful to Rome itself because the emperor of God, the emperor of God, the emperor of Rome was considered a god. He was sitting there next to Zeus and Hera and Hercules. He was a god himself. And so by rejecting the Roman pantheon, you're also rejecting the power of Rome and saying, listen, they're not my ultimate authority. You and so the people must have thought, well, you hate the gods, and therefore you hate Rome, and therefore, you know, on and on and on. So he says, don't engage in these activities. 
He says in verse 4, they are surprised that you don't, jo- don't join them in the same flood of wild living, and they slander, slander you. So of course they would be surprised that you don't join in the orgy because that means you don't care about the welfare of your city. They'd be surprised you don't join them in the idolatry because if you're not offering um, sacrifices to these gods, then you don't care about being wealthy, you don't care about your children having a good life, you don't care about your health, you don't care about Rome being victorious in whatever war they were in, which was all the time. Um, so you must not care about our city. They're gonna, people will say things and treat you poorly for your faithfulness. And we see some of this stuff happening today, right? Like there are instances where people take a stand on a biblical truth, and hopefully the people are getting mad at them not because they're being a jerk about it, but they are taking a stand and they're doing it in love, and people will still get mad at you about it. And, we, and these things a lot of times manifest as like culture war issues, so I don't really want to get into it, but we all kind of know what we're talking about. Um, and Paul is, Paul, I keep doing it, Peter is trying to encourage these people. And so in the next verse he says, they will give an account to the one who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. This should be encouragement for the persecuted church or for any of us that judgment is coming, but you know the judge. You don't have to worry about the judgment that is coming if you know who the judge is. If you're buddies with the judge and you can, hey, like, hey, can you, can you help me out here? Um, not only do you know the judge, you know the judge's son who's going to be your lawyer, which seems like a big conflict of interest, but it works in the court of heaven, I guess. Um, so we shouldn't be afraid of this judgment that is coming, but the ones who are slandering you for standing up for righteousness, the, sl- the ones who are causing your suffering for righteousness, righteousness sake, they should probably be afraid. And, and they're all going to be judged. So it doesn't, you, sometimes we think, oh, well, um, you know, you might have someone who's being like a real jerk to you. And these people, were, I'm sure, had people who were like, you know, the, the government officials were the ones who were causing the suffering. And it might be easy for those Christians to think when that guy finally dies and loses his spot being the governor or whatever, they go, good, our suffering's over. But the next guy was going to come around and do the exact same thing. So Paul assures them he's going to judge the living and the dead. That guy who was persecuting you before, who's now died because you only lived to the ripe old age of 45 in these times, he's going to get judged too. He's not free from this because he's no longer here. And the encouragement continues in this passage that um, harkens back to what Pastor Preston talked about last week with the harrowing of hell. He says, For this reason the gospel was also preached to those who are now dead, so that although they might be judged in the flesh according to human standards, they might live in the spirit according to God's standard. So the Greeks and uh, people this time kind of believed in what we call the intermediate state, which was that when you died, everyone went to the same holding tank in their religion. So if you've seen, I'm going to keep referencing this movie because I love it. If you've seen the Disney movie Hercules, everyone dies and they go swimming around in this pool forever with Hades, who's a big blue dude with fiery hair. But that's like good people and bad people. They all just go to this tank. And so that's where these, the context that these Christians were coming out of. And so... We also see this in the idea of Sheol or Abraham's bosom and stuff like that. And so this is for everyone, good and bad. And so like Pastor Preston mentioned, that Jesus goes down there and preaches to um, those who are dead. And the word preached is better translated probably as like proclaimed or declared. And he's proclaiming the gospel. Well, we have to ask, what is the gospel? And there were, you know, there was more than one gospel at this time. There was the gospel of Rome. There was the gospel of so, like any, any king had his own gospel. And that comes from a Greek word that I'm going to butcher this one, Don, so sorry. Evangelizo, which is where we get the word evangelism. If you saw it written out, you'd be like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Um, But that's where we get the word for the good news. It's a record of victory. 
And so there was the Gospel of Caesar, which was the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, where he would say, he'd conquer a place and say, good news, I bring you the peace of Rome. We were just at war and I just killed half your village, but now I bring you the peace of Rome, that we have roads. You didn't have roads. We have running water, which they did. We have, you know, wealth and people don't starve in Rome. Like, we ha- you're going to be protected now from the barbarian hordes that are trying to sack your village all the time. I bring you the good news of Rome. And Jesus is bringing his gospel, his record of victory. He's not calling the wicked in this place to repentance. They had their chance. Jesus is proclaiming a victory. He's just stating a fact. He's providing um, the righteous in Sheol with hope and joy that the thing we've been waiting for is here. I've been reading a book in preparation for this a little bit. I'm not only done with it yet, but I've read parts of it. It's called He Descended to the Dead, An Evangelical Theology of Holy Saturday. And if that sounds interesting to you, you're a nerd like me. Um, but it's written by this guy named Matthew Emerson, who's a, he's, in our, he's in our tribe. He's a, a Baptist pastor and professor. And when he talks about this verse, he says, you know, like, Jesus wasn't coming to try and evangelize to the, to the dead and, and save them and bring them back if they had already made their choice. He is providing the righteous in, in the state to see what they had trusted in come to tangible fruition. Um, he's just coming in to just dunk on the devil. They're like, look, I've won. I've beaten you. This is hope for those in Sheol, and these are hope for those alive today, that Jesus died and he rose, and he also waltzed in the enemy territory and proclaimed his victory. Before Pastor Preston was Pastor Preston, he was just wee little Preston. He, he came up onto this platform, and he preached a sermon that I'll never forget because it was a youth Saturday, Sunday, and he was preaching about um, the, how the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And I'd always thought, like, that was, hell was advancing on the church, but the gates are not an offensive tool. They're a defensive tool. They're meant to keep people out. And Jesus broke down those gates when he descended into, into this place, and he busted in and had the best victory ever. And in fact, I've looked up some of the biggest landslide victories in all of sports because that helps me kind of understand it. And I'm going to tell you them, and you should be very impressed because some of these are wild. So on October 23rd, 2003, I don't know anything about rugby, but I was told by the internet that this is a really big score. Australia beat Namibia 142 to 0 in rugby. It get, there's bigger victories than this. You hold on. <laughs> On November 8th, 2003, so it was a good year for blowouts, Oklahoma beat Texas A&M 77-0 in football, which if you're not good at the old sports ball, that's 11 touchdowns, and that's a lot. Um, on December 8th, 1940, in the NFL, the Chicago Bears um, beat the Washington Redskins 73-0. And September 10th, 2008, this is a hockey score. And if you're not a big hockey fan, like four goals is a lot in hockey. Um, Slovakia beat Bulgaria 82 to 0 in hockey. I don't know how there was enough time for that to even happen, but it did. And this one, this one's crazy. On October 7th, 1916, Georgia Tech, who is now a team that is not good um, and hasn't been my entire life, they beat Cumberland 222 to 0 in football. That's a football score, folks. And we can look at these and be like, wow, that's incredible. But these teams, they're going to have their ups and downs. Georgia Tech has not ever scored that many points again, probably in like the whole season, because they're bad at football. So, and we see like, we see these places that have big victories. And Rome had their victories. They had running water in the ancient world. That was crazy. That was huge. Well, what happened to their aqueducts? Well, there's just a bunch of ruins now. Georgia Tech is a ruined football team. 
the Chicago Bears, if you follow football, you know. <laughs> um, they're no good. But Jesus' nomination was final, and there's not going to be a rematch. He's not going to like, oh, it's, it's a rebuilding year for Team Jesus. No. He's won, and it's over, and there's not, yeah, it's a woo. Get a woo out of that. Th- that's what this pro- proclamation was. And I know people sometimes get skeptical about this doctrine, and we think, oh, he's giving him a second chance. No. He's coming in to say, guys, I just blew out Satan in the game of crucifixion and resurrection. He lost. And we, and we look at Revelation and we think, oh, he's going to have another chance. No, that's like if Cumberland got a first down after losing 222 to 0. Ooh, they got a first down. La-di-da. It's over. The game is done. So that, that, that would have given the Christians that were suffering immense hope that, yeah, I'm suffering now, but this is all over. I've won. It's like anything that's happening now is just the team that is down by 80 points finally making a layup. Ooh, Whatever. I've won, and Jesus has won, it's over. And to that end, Peter continues and says, the end of all things is near, so be alert and sober-minded for prayer. We hear the end is near, and the image that you think, what is, what's the image you think when you hear the end is near? I think of a guy standing on a corner in New York City with like a big sign or maybe like a sandwich board thing. And for some reason for me, he always has like long crazy hair and a beard that's just out of control. And maybe he's wearing just like a burlap sack. But just some crazy dude shouting at you, the end is near, the end is near. That's like an insane thing to say. Except it's not, because Peter actually says, when he says be sober-minded for prayer, that's sober-minded, that's another Greek word I'm going to destroy, is sophroneo, which means be in the right mind or be sane. He's saying that this is the sane position to take, that the end is near, so be alert and be ready for prayer. Speaking of prayer, prayer day is happening back there. Don't forget to do it. It's going to be great. Um, it's not crazy to say the end is near. It's the only sane position. And you can say, well, but Peter, you said that 2,000 years ago, and here we are. Jesus didn't come back. You were wrong. And so in preparation for this, I listened to a Tim Keller sermon where he was talking a little bit about, I think, verses 7 and 10. And he was saying that, like, when, when he takes his kids to the park, this was many years ago when he was a younger man, this sermon, and he takes his kids to the park and says, well, Mom's going to be here any minute. And they say, well, that means we have some time. She's not here yet. We can go play on the on the playground, and then they play for a while, or, or he, keeps, he keeps telling them, no, we can't do that, because when mom comes, we have to be ready to go. Ten minutes, 15 minutes pass. Like, dad, we could have gone and done the slide three times by now. And you were wrong. Mom isn't going to be here. She's not, she's not here yet. But he wasn't wrong, because you, didn't, you don't know when he's coming. Jesus, Jesus doesn't even know when he's going to be coming back. And so to say, I can do whatever, because Paul said, or Peter said, that Jesus is coming back soon, I have plenty of time because it's been 2,000 years and it hasn't happened yet. Peter didn't know that. You don't know that. Jesus doesn't know that. So is he wrong that, that it's not going to be soon? No, because nobody knows. It's this unknown value. So it's like a Schrodinger's cat of when is Jesus coming back? He's coming back and not coming back at the same time. Who knows? We, we can't know. So we need to be this, take the same position and act like he's coming back now any second. I may not finish this sermon. That'd be the same position to take. And so... To live this way, to live as if, um, oh, I missed a thing, sorry. Should this worry us? I know a lot of people, especially in my generation, there's this thing that's been talked about recently called rapture anxiety, that for some of us growing up, I think the motivation was good, was to show us that Jesus is coming back and that we need to be ready for that. 
the way it was done was kind of um, just make kids afraid and then they'll be ready for it. And so now some people have like real fear of the rapture. Um, so yeah, you, there's some movies out there that I've, I've now seen as an adult because I didn't know about them. And now after seeing them as an adult, I'm like, that seems really, I would have been terrified as a kid. Um, Thief in the night, anyone. That one's scary. So should we be afraid? And the answer is no. Christians uh, should not be afraid of meeting the one who says, I will not reject you. He's not going to reject us. What we should be afraid of is having lived an ungrateful life preceding meeting the one who says, I will not reject you. This should be a a life-changing idea that's going to destroy so many ideas in our culture that, like, we have all the time in the world to do everything. We have these ideas that, oh, if I, I, I have plenty of time to get to that. I don't need to do that thing. You know, uh, once I'm established in my career, then I'll give money to charity. Once I've, um, you know, got everything that I need around me, then I'm going to help out with whatever. Um, the ends justify the means. Um, and if you guys don't, un- I know that's a phrase that we toss around, we don't really understand, so I'm going to tell you a story that I'm not proud of. Um, but when I was in middle school, you come in from the bus or from the car, where, however you got there, and they all h- hold you into uh, the intermediate state of middle school, which was the cafeteria. And you sit there and you wait for the bell to ring. And while you're waiting, that's the time where if you um, thought that all ends were justified by the means, you could get, finish your homework that you forgot to do, which I did a lot. So I'd forget that I had a math assignment. And, I'd, oh, crap, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fail if I don't get this math homework turned in. But my buddy over here, he did the math homework. And there's plenty of time for me to copy everything that he's done. And I would do that thinking that the end, the end goal of me just not failing would justify the act of me cheating, basically, to get there. And, and Peter is saying here that that's not true because Jesus could come back at any second. So you might get caught. You might think whatever the thing is that's not great that will get me to the thing is that is great, that's worth it because I'll get to the good thing. But when Jesus comes back halfway in the middle and you haven't gotten to the good thing yet, what's, what's justified? You've, all you've done is sin. I have a sticker on my water bottle because I'm a water bottle sticker guy. And it's a picture of Charles Spurgeon. And he says, of two evils, choose neither. To remind you that when given the option of the evil or the evil, you just don't do the evil. And that's what Peter is getting at here, I think, is at least an implication of it, is that there's nothing that we can do that is bad, that is ever justified. It assumes that we know better what we will get is the best result. And we can't know that. So then how should we live if we can't live by this idea that we can put things off forever? How should we live if... Ends don't justify means, which they clearly don't. Um, How should we live in that mindset? And Peter goes on to tell us, he says, Above all, maintain constant love for one another, since love covers a multitude of sins. We need to have constant love. When there's resentment, there can't be forgiveness, there can't be healing, there can't be relational progress, but love covers the multitude of sins. Love allows us to forgive. And that can, I think sometimes we hear this, oh, you have to forgive me or whatever, and people think, They just want to move on past the situation. They don't want to deal with what had happened. N.T. Wright says this about about love covering sins. He doesn't mean that love is a cover-up operation, hiding things we'd rather not face. Rather, the gift of love we are invited to offer to one another, minute by minute, day by day, actually transforms situations so that the multitude of sins which were there before are taken out of the equation. Jesus is coming soon, any minute. Do we want to be found not loving? Love is the foundation of all the things that Christ did for us and for all the things that we were supposed to be doing for other people. It's the foundation for what Peter's going to say next, 
in verse 10, or verse 9. He says, be hospitable to one another without complaining. We, I think we do a decent job sometimes of being hospitable to one another. It's the without complaining part that's the hard thing. Because I've been asked plenty of times to go do this or do that, and then I walk away grumbling, oh, I can't believe I have to do that. My boss at work tells me to do a thing that's an easy thing and I think he should do, or I, you know, I don't have time for this, and I walk away, oh, I can't believe I have to make that spreadsheet. He could just make that spreadsheet. It would be so easy. Um, but hospitality is something that we haven't really mastered, is it? And, and we think of it as like hotels and stuff and not that big of a deal. But the New Testament or the Old Testament gives us a glimpse into how important hospitality was. Um, you don't have to turn there. But in Genesis 18, Abraham's sitting under a tree and it says that the Lord appeared to him. But then it was three guys. It was the Trinity. Um, and he sees these, these strangers come up and he just gets up and runs. And at this point, he's an old guy. In this culture, old people didn't run. Um, like ever, and if to do so was to degrade, if you, had, if you put an elderly person in a situation where they had to run, you were degrading them and showing them that you didn't respect them. But Abraham was degrading himself to run to offer these strangers, just random people, food and rest and, and a, some time in the shade, give them some water. In the next chapter, Genesis 19, we see the hospitality of Lot that he offers to other strangers and you, we look at this and say, this crazy that he would offer his daughters to this mob of people who want to hurt and abuse the, the strangers. He says, do that to my daughters instead. And I know you guys with daughters probably are like, I could never, ever do that. But this was how important hospitality was in this culture. And this is the kind of hospitality that Peter is talking about. We are called to radical, especially for our time, hospitality, and to do so without complaint. After all, if the end is here, if the end is going to be here any time, what does it matter if... I don't get to eat that piece of cake that I've been saving, but I gave it to somebody else and it blessed them. What does it matter if I don't get to sleep for a night in my own bed if Jesus is just going to come back anyway and none of this is going to last? Next he says, just as, just as each one has received a gift, use it to serve others as good stewards of the varied grace of God. So if you are a Christian, if you've received the Holy Spirit, you've been given a spiritual gift. 1 Corinthians 12, 7-10 says, a manifestation of the Spirit is given to each person for the common good. To one is given a message of wisdom through the Spirit, to another a message of knowledge by the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the performing of miracles, to another prophecy, to another distinguishing between spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, to another interpretation of tongues. We are all given these gifts, and why are we supposed to use them? What is the point of the spiritual gift? It's to build up the body. And even says, as good stewards of the varied grace of God, use these things. He's showing us that um, his grace is coming to us through these gifts. That when you are using your spiritual gift, you are displaying the grace of God to the body. You're giving them something good from God. And he says that if you're not doing this, you're not being a good steward. Um, where am I here? He says that use them as good stewards of the varied grace of God. And so I would argue that if it's not good stewardship to wait until the perfect thing that just perfectly fits my gift comes along and then I get to use it and now I'm doing the thing. Jesus is coming back soon, so you better be using your gift now. So if you're not serving with your gift, if you're not giving, giving that gift away to the, the body, you're not stewarding your gift well. And Brent just talked about what happens to people who don't steward things well when he talked about the servants and the talents. I don't want to be that, that servant who buried his talent. 
I don't want to be the guy who's just not using his gift because the perfect ministry hasn't come along that fits everything just exactly as I want it. If you're not using your gift, you're not stewarding it well. And all of this stuff that we're doing is going to be done and empowered by the Spirit because we can't do these things on our own. Verse 11, he says, If anyone speaks, let it be as one who speaks God's words. If anyone serves, let it be from the strength God provides so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. If you are speaking by your own power, what credit does it give to God? If I can just do everything on my own, what does it matter? Like, why do I need God if I can just do all the things? If you are serving with your own strength, what credit does it give to God? Well, I can say that if you're speaking on your own power, you're going to mess up and say some things that are not right, and you're going to fall into heresy, or you're going to be insulting, or mean, or whatever. And if you're serving on your own strength, you're going to get burnt out. And we've seen that all over the place. That people are just getting burnt out on life. And we've been, so we've been talking about suffering, and this passage kind of seemed out of place, this end times ethics section. Like, how is this lex- end times lecture about suffering? What's the takeaway? It's all we always want, right? How, what do I get from this? What's in it for me? Well, these Turkish Christians that were suffering, they were attempting to live out their faith, and they were suffering for it. And Peter is encouraging by addressing their suffering and acknowledging it and saying, yeah, it's real. And he's showing us that in your suffering, you need to look to Christ as an example of how to suffer in a way that leads you to more holiness. And he's encouraging them by the complete and total victory of Jesus, of Jesus that 222-0 domination. Um, he's encouraging them that the end of their suffering is coming at any moment. So well, at the same time, he's also challenging us to live in a way that is worthy of the great judge who's coming back at any time. That judge who loves us so much, that judge who won't reject us, that we don't need to be afraid of, he's coming back at any time. But the biggest why of this entire thing, of why, why does this matter, what does, it, what does it even mean, is the last half of verse 11. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. God's going to be glorified. He's going to be glorified by the people that he judges and sends and banishes from his presence. They're going to glorify him because he's removed the sin and, and everything from his presence. So what do we do with this? What we need to know is we need to suffer well. We need to look to Jesus and his suffering. We need to love well and serve each other and use the gifts that God has given us to steward them well. And if we're not using them, we're not stewarding them well. Because the king is coming and he's going to be glorified.